I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Wednesday, November 15th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, Governor Tate Reeves has listed a burn ban affecting 40 counties. Meteorologists say full relief from these dry conditions is still a ways away. Then Mississippi has one of the highest rates of diabetes in the nation. Plus, a historian and author shares how he came to see through the myth of the Confederate lost cause. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Excluding extreme east-central Mississippi, much of the state has fallen under the National Weather Service's most severe classification for droughts. Governor Reeves has lifted a long-running statewide burn ban after months of extreme drought conditions. Mike Edmonston is senior meteorologist at the National Weather Service in Jackson. He tells our Mike McEwen rain has come to many areas, but not enough at this point to recover from the drought. We were forecast at a time to get, you know, maybe one to three inches over the next several days. There's still another system that's supposed to come, but the system, this one particularly, is staying a little further south, so we're getting less rainfall amounts than we anticipated. But go ahead and ask your questions. I'll answer them the best I can, but that's what I'm saying. There's other sources out there as far as, uh, like, the drought, if you're familiar with, you know, because I don't have any control over the drought, and I can tell you it's going to take – inches in the message during the basically during the August, September and into November, the flash drought that we were talking about with the stories was the fact that it, it set on so fast we went from wet to dry. And you know, the bigger story and the issues were the farmers. Some of the farmers were needing extra feed and money for uh, cattle and stuff like that, but the drought monitor only updates on Thursdays. It's a slow response. So these guys were already complaining about the government being too slow to update it into an actual drought and recognize it as an exceptional drought and not just a severe drought and whatnot. But that's still across the area. I mean, I can call it the drought monitor for you. And it shows basically the central portions of uh, Mississippi, like along and east of the Mississippi River and basically across the southern or central portions, like all the way from Jackson down to Brookhaven and, and whatnot. Today, Governor Reeves uh, lifted the statewide burn ban, or he will be lifting it on the 16th. He announced it today. 
Yeah, clarified that some county-level bans will remain in place, but the statewide ban is going to be lifted Thursday. Right. That just gives it down to the local level instead of at the at the state level, I guess, is what you're Is there any, I guess, any phenomenon you all are aware of that has been leading to this extreme drought? I know several months ago I talked to David Cox, I think it was, about the heat dome and... I guess the the position of the jet stream that was maybe keeping some storms from making their way further north. What's kind of well, at play still? Because we're pretty far into, I guess, autumn or approaching winter now. No, actually, we're due for a. Uh, or this the rain systems that we're getting are probably going to be more typical of what we're expecting for the the winter season. Because that was another story we had reporters calling us. The Climate Prediction Center, the CPC, launched its winter weather outlook. And basically, it's calling for a strong El Nino, and that was the big story. The big story was November, December, and January are supposed to see above-normal precipitation with the greatest likelihood of above-normal precipitation across our southern zone. So you could say south of Interstate 20, and that's almost what this system's doing. It's not producing a lot of rain in the north, and it's due to the southern branch of the jet stream tracking across there which is a El Nino pattern when you start talking climatological patterns that lead to our weather. So we're supposed to see an increase in a reversal from drought. So the long-term picture is looking good if it, if the uh, climatological pattern pans out. On the other hand, one of the other leads were, they were trying to talk about, does that infer that we're going to have uh, more likelihood of winter weather? And that's not the case neither because we could be as far as temperature-wise, there was no indicator. It was equal chances for it to be warmer than normal and colder than normal. So what you really need is you really need some system to put colder than normal temperatures in here freezing and then have a, a wetter than normal system follow closely on its footsteps, and then we could have, like, freezing rain or a, or a snow event or something like that. You just give me a general sense of you know, where the drought stands now in terms of, I guess not hard numbers, but just how dry it is, how little rain we've been receiving, according to data. All right, well, you I, can, I, can, I can call you up uh, Meridian and I can call you up Jackson. But as far as the drought monitor goes, that area that I just described, and it's the highest level of drought, and that's called an exceptional drought. Let me get that over. That's most of our, when I say most of our area. So if you just stick with Mississippi, it includes probably all the way from just east of Natchez, going all the way up toward Grenada. It's almost like a bell curve is what it almost looks like. But that is an exceptional drought, not just a uh, the other one, an extreme drought. If you had to classify it simply, just say most of Mississippi or most of Mississippi south of Highway 82 is in an exceptional drought with the exception of extreme east-central Mississippi, which has had more rain and only considered a severe drought. So it tapers down over east central Mississippi. How far would you say um, are are we here in central Mississippi in the worst affected region of this drought? How far are we from, I guess, relief from getting back to normal? Would it be very far in your expertise? Well, look at it at this point. We said we were down... 7.3 inches, or we were down for the month, 1.31. And then for the season, that's like a three-month, September, October, and into November, we're down seven inches. So we'd have to have 
three or four systems that dropped an inch and a half to two inches in every three or four days. So that would be like for the rest of the month. The best way to answer it is we're not close, but it, we're seeing a trend toward a wetter pattern. Mike Edmonston is senior meteorologist at the National Weather Service in Jackson. Next, Mississippi has one of the highest rates of diabetes in the nation. We'll take a closer look at that. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Ari Shapiro with NPR. People collect all sorts of things. Stamps, antique lamps, sports memorabilia. If you happen to collect cars and you're looking to make room for some new additions, look no further than this station. Pickup is free and you're helping make your favorite NPR programs possible. Learn more about it on this station's website and thank you in advance for thinking about helping public radio. Donate your car, motorcycle, boat, or RV by going to mpbonline.org. This is MPB Think Radio. Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A new ad campaign from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention targets people who have pre-diabetes in Mississippi. And that's an A1C level that is between 5.7 to 6.4 percent. The state has the second highest diabetes mortality rate in the nation behind West Virginia. More than 326,000 Mississippians have been diagnosed with the disease, but an estimated 75,000 don't know they have it, and their A1C levels are 6.5% or higher. Our Will Stribling speaks with Irena McLean, Associate Director of the Diabetes Foundation of Mississippi. She says a large number of undiagnosed patients is likely caused by gaps in health care throughout the state. They are walking around and those elevated blood sugars are doing damage to their body, but they're completely unaware. I would imagine a lot of those people don't have insurance, so they just can't go to a doctor, um, or they may live in a rural area where there isn't a doctor readily available. And the problem with undiagnosed diabetes is that you're at risk for heart attack and stroke and some of the other complications such as you know kidney damage and um, also damage to your vision and it's a it's a growing problem in Mississippi uh, we I have been here about 30 years and really have yet to see um, the numbers go down at all and it's just um, you know it's frightening because probably the poorest state in the country very rural state um, a lot of our population live in areas where there's no hospital, doctor, or clinic readily available. So if they do suspect they have diabetes, they, who are they going to go see? I mean, we, we are fortunate to have some of the federally qualified health centers nearby, but, you know, transportation issues, I mean, there's, there's a lot of barriers that, that keep people from going to the doctor when they really need to. Can you talk a bit about just the toll it takes on the body? Because, you know, people, you know, people will commonly think of like the extreme cases, you know, where someone has to have a foot, you know, amputated or something like that. But 
Well, part of the thing with diabetes, again, one of the first signs people notice is fatigue, and we can kind of brush it off, well, you know, I'm 40 now, chasing after teenagers, that's why I'm tired. But when you look at what happens with diabetes, in someone that does not have diabetes, the sugars from the food that you eat go into your cells of your body, and your body burns them for energy. Um, It's kind of like our cars run on gas, our bodies run on glucose. And insulin acts like a key to open up the door into your cells to get that sugar in to add to um, burn for energy. And the um, problem when you have, you know, blood sugar uh, going up, it does make you tired. And it does put you at risk for developing diabetes in the long run. So it's it's certainly beneficial to all of us to find out from our families, especially since we're approaching holidays next week, talk with them, hey, do we have diabetes in the family? And if people say, no, you know, we've had sugar, well, sugar is diabetes. That's what people call it down in, in the southern part of the U.S. But if someone says, no, we don't have diabetes at all, you know, don't don't think, well, heck, I'm, I'm safe. Um, you know, there's always that index case. There's always that first person to develop diabetes. Yeah, and there's, and you, you said that you've, you know, as long as you've been with the foundation, you've just seen our rates of diabetes in Mississippi just continue to, to go up. But there's, um, right, in that period, yeah. uh, what has changed about our understanding of the disease and how to treat it, prevent it, if anything? Or is it, you know, mostly well, the, the science the same as it's been for a while now? When I first started here 30 years ago, you know, the study, the Diabetes Complications Control Trial had just come to a conclusion showing that keeping blood glucose levels as close to normal when you have diabetes reduced your risk of developing some of the complications, such as diabetic neuropathy, which is that nerve damage, or the nephropathy, which is the kidney damage. Since then, we've, you know, we now know that type 1 is an autoimmune process and that um, it can take years, even though it seems to come on suddenly, really it could take months or years to develop, and that um, that's for type 1 diabetes, the the one where you have to use insulin from the get-go. We now know that with type 2 diabetes, we can turn it um you know, with prediabetes, we can turn around about a third of the cases so that they don't have diabetes or prediabetes anymore, that they go back to normal blood glucose. Um, we also know that, you know, probably another third are going to end up staying the same. They'll seem like they have prediabetes for a long time, and another third will end up developing, you know, full-blown diabetes. Um, the technology has been phenomenal. When I first um, came here, my boss was one of the few people in the state that wore an insulin pump. Now we see children as young as a couple of year old, um, you know, wearing insulin pumps if they're diagnosed with type 1 diabetes. We now, instead of just doing finger stick tests, we now have these wonderful continuous glucose monitors that are discreet. You can wear them on your arm or in, on your abdomen, and, you know, they can either beam your blood glucose information to your insulin pump or a handheld device, 
or you can wave your phone over another brand of continuous glucose monitor. It'll tell you what your blood sugar is doing, but most importantly, it tells you trending patterns. So it can tell you, is your blood sugar holding steady? Is it going up quickly? Is it going down slowly? Is it going down quickly? So you have a chance to intervene before you have a crisis develop. Irina McLean is Associate Director of the Diabetes Foundation of Mississippi. Coming up, a historian and author shares how he came to see through the myth of the Confederate lost cause. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. It's commonly known the Civil War was fought to preserve slavery, but some in Mississippi believe in a lost cause or some deeper meaning behind the conflict. It's a misconception that was shared by historian Ty Siduli. However, through his work, he discovered it was all a lie created by segregationists and people who support the system of slavery. He's authored the book Robert E. Lee and Me and has helped in the renaming of army bases that bear namesakes of the Confederacy. Sid Julie speaking at this week's History is Lunch at the two Mississippi museums in Jackson at noon. He'll share what it took for him to see through that myth of a lost cause. I grew up in Virginia and Georgia uh, worshiping Robert E. Lee. I mean, he was uh, the epitome of a Southern gentleman. I wanted to be a Southern gentleman. And everything in my life led me to believe that he was the, the best human in the world. And uh, when I became uh, an Army officer and, uh, and a historian, uh, I found out something different. So I served in the Army for 36 years, retiring as a brigadier general. And when, during that time, I, was, uh, I spent 20 years at West Point as a professor. And I went back to the archives and looked at this and found out that, no, that wasn't the case. In fact, the Confederates and Robert E. Lee chose treason. Uh, to preserve slavery. So treason, because Article 3, Section 3 of the Constitution uh, says that there's only one crime in the Constitution, and that is levying war against the United States, and that's treason. And why did they do this treason? To destroy the United States of America. It was to create a slave republic to exploit uh, men, women, and children based on the amount of melanin in their skin uh, for eternity. And when I found that out, I became incredibly angry and couldn't write about this in the Army. And then I found out, in fact, the Army had nine Army bases named after Confederates, including Robert E. Lee, and there were more than a dozen things named at West Point after them. And so I started my, my research to find out why, and when I realized that, that it was treason for slavery, made me so angry, but I couldn't really explain this to people and make them understand without telling them my own story. So I tell the story of the Confederates and Confederate monuments by using myself as an example of that. There's been a renewed conversation in recent years, especially looking back to 2020 during the George Floyd protests, about if Mississippi and other states should be displaying monuments to the Confederacy. Do you think these conversations are 
speaking to a larger sentiment that people are moving beyond this mythos of the Southern uh, lost cause. Yeah, I think it is, because remember, those monuments went up at a period from 1890 to 1920, primarily, when black Americans had no vote, when it was a celebration of white supremacy, when whites were the only ones that could could vote. And so they went. And and if you read the speeches of any of these monuments, it's about the Anglo-Saxons taking back control. So these were created to ensure white supremacy. And they're out in front of courthouses for a reason, because black Americans could only go into these courthouses as defendants or as custodians. So, yeah, we should relook at these because it's not changing history. It's changing commemoration. Who we commemorate represents our values. So if if, if a community's values are no longer represented by that, then we should change it. And that's what I'm particularly against are states like uh, Mississippi and others that don't allow local communities to remove uh, monuments that don't reflect those values. And I'm not saying every local community should have the right to change those monuments if it no longer reflects their values, like Mississippi did with the flag. Change that flag because it no longer represents your values. Now, if people are holding this uh, idea of a uh, idealized confederacy, what would be the things that you talk to them about to deconstruct those perceptions that they have? I know it can often be a very difficult thing for people to come to grips with because they might have had a family member fight in the confederacy, and it can be conflicting for someone to look back and see their ancestors participating in, in a system that promoted slavery. Well, it wasn't just a system that promoted slavery. It was a slave slave system. But I would tell them, hey, do you have family members that fought in the Spanish-American War, World War One, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, the first Gulf War, Iraq, and Afghanistan? Those are people that fought for the United States of America to, to save it. If you love this country, how can you love the Confederacy? Because it tried to destroy this country that we love so much. The second thing is to remember the deeply evil nature of what the Confederacy fought for. So remember that most white boys and young men had their first sexual experience with an enslaved person. Remember that most uh, 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 black Americans who trace their heritage to the enslaved era have about 20 to 23 percent European DNA. And the reason for that is that that rape was ubiquitous. And so it was a deeply evil system. And those people who are looking back at that time, you don't own the actions of those who lived in the 1850s or 1860s, but you do have a responsibility to ensure that you understand what that history was and, and, and choose your heroes. You get to choose your heroes. You don't have to choose those who fought for the Confederacy. Choose other heroes. Your book dives into the experience of someone who uh, – yourself who grew up in a system that promoted this racist history. I wanted to get your thoughts on the cause behind that. Do you think it's ignorance? Is it malice from people who are trying to preserve this idea that the South is a lost cause, or is it somewhere in between? Well, I do think that if you grow up in a system where you're told one thing for most of your life, it is hard to change that. You know, The thing about history is it's dangerous because it challenges our myths and our identities. And when, challenge, when, when people challenge a myth or identity, the reaction could be ferocious. I get that. Um, but, but listen, we Americans aren't made out of cotton candy. We can handle the truth. We can handle the facts. It will make us a better people. It will make us more empathetic. And the only way to change current policy to ensure a fairer America is to first understand that history. So it's not as though I'm saying I want less history. I want more. 
but to rescue um, the, the stories of those of the enslaved people, to rescue the stories of, of women and other people whose stories haven't been told makes us makes for a stronger America. I mean, there's no way you can say slavery was good. And the Confederates fought for slavery. That's the system they wanted. And they wanted to expand it into Cuba, into the Caribbean, into Latin America, California, South America. This was a people that wanted to expand and create a slave empire throughout uh, North America and South America. So that's not your values today. No one in America wants that. And it's no, it's not going to hurt you to say, well, gosh, that's not who I want to be. No, be the United States of America, this great country that we are now, not the Confederacy, who we defeated. They lost. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd like to share with Mississippians? Well, I think the one thing I would like to say that I'll also be talking about is an example of how you can change. So I was part of the naming commission uh, by, created by Congress to change and, uh, and eradicate those commemor- Confederate commemorations in the Department of Defense. And we did that. And, and um, uh, we, we had our remit to remove all Confederate commemoration. And there we found 1,111 things that commemorated Confederates in the Department of Defense. And by the end of – by next month, all of that will be gone. And so now there will be uh, the bases like Fort Lee and uh, Fort Polk and other ones will be – have been renamed. They've all been already renamed after true American heroes that represent the values of this country. So we can do this, and we did do this. In fact, we finished on time, under budget, with 100 percent of our recommendations accepted and implemented. So that naming commission succeeded in the Department of Defense, and there's no reason it can't succeed in other places as well. Ty Sigley is an author of Robert E. Lee and Me, a book that he has written about himself and his experience trying to overcome the myth of the lost cause. He's speaking at this week's History is Lunch in Jackson at noon. Ty, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, great talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.